Justin Worland, welcome back, my friend. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Justin, the holiday season is here. Uh, what are you looking forward to? Um, I am looking forward to, and this is going to sound crazy, but I'm looking forward to my first real vacation of the year. Uh, Wait, what does that mean? Taking some time off. and <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? I mean, it's like, do those exist anymore? How about you? Uh, well, as we've discussed in the pod, uh, my wife and I are expecting a little one any day now. Frankly, by the time this airs, uh, the little one might be into the world. So it is going to be the holiday season of a newborn for us. Well, that that's a great way to end this year. And, and congratulations again. I know I've said it, but, you know, could always say it again. Congrats. And welcome. Welcome into Temperature Check, a podcast from Grist. Temperature Check is a weekly show about climate, race, and culture. My name is Andrew Simon, and coming up in a few minutes, my conversation with filmmaker Cecilia Alderondo. Her new documentary, Landfall, tells the stories of people living in Puerto Rico post-Hurricane Maria, so stay tuned for that. But first, I'm with Justin Worland today, friend and co-homie, as we like to say, and uh, we're going to talk about some of the year's biggest natural disasters. I know, really hopeful talk here, but you know, maybe by the end we'll bring it to something more hopeful. Uh, Justin is a senior correspondent over at Time Magazine. He covers climate change and the intersection of policy, politics, and societies. Hello. I'm glad to have this important discussion. Um, and yes, I hope I hope for a hopeful note, too. Yes, exactly. We'll, we'll try. We'll try by the end of the pod to get to a hopeful note. Um, so 2020 is almost a wrap. Boy, what a year it's been. Um, but specifically when it comes to climate, really was a year of some of the most devastating disasters, right? Yeah, this was this was a really remarkable year. And you know, as you say, it's 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 easy to forget what this year looked like in climate given everything else. But yeah. just remember yeah. back in January, uh, this year began with these really unprecedented wildfires that uh, yeah. in Australia that received a right. ton of attention. And you know, amid the COVID crisis here in the US, we've also seen just a crazy number of record climate disasters. And so, yeah. you know, if you just look at the numbers, NOAA attracts this this year tied the number of climate-related right. disasters, uh, at least as of October. There were 16 disasters with losses that exceeded a billion dollars, and that includes everything from drought in Colorado, where more than a quarter of the state was in drought conditions, to these unprecedented wildfires in California. You know, the first wildfire uh, this century that exceeded more than a million acres in the lower 48 states happened in California. Right. Just really, really wild. And, you know, I think it's important to note you know, you look at COVID and of course, hundreds of thousands of people have died and only a few hundred, uh, you know, I say only, but only a few hundred have have died as a result of climate-related disasters in the U.S. this year. But I think we're really in the sort of march of climate change, uh, if you think about it in COVID terms, right? right? Like right. this is just a taste of what's to come and it's really, really alarming. Yeah, a, a catastrophic year on so many fronts. So again, coming up in our conversation today with Cecilia Aldorando, uh, the filmmaker, she focuses on, again, Puerto Rico and what life is like after uh, Hurricane Maria there. And how does this year's hurricane season compare to others, relatively speaking? Yeah, it's a similar similar trend, right? This has been a record year for the Atlantic hurricane season. 30 yeah. named storms. Uh, they ran out of names for for storms, right. which is crazy. I know. Uh, and, and 13 hurricanes. Um, so there were a couple big ones I'd point out. Hurricane Laura, which 
you know, it was a Category 4 storm that killed yeah. at least 26 people, uh, caused yeah. a fire at a chemical plant in southwestern Louisiana. Hurricane Sally in South Florida knocked out power for hundreds of thousands of people. You know, and then, of course, there were nearly a dozen more, but uh, quite a year for hurricanes. There's also those intersections, right, between the climate crisis and how it causes other health uh, problems with people and how that relates to COVID as well, right? Meaning there are probably people dying from several of these factors, right? Absolutely. And it's probably hard to measure that, but uh, boy, these multiple crises at once is just, it's a, it's a lot for humanity to take right now. Absolutely. And I mean, if you think about, you know, environmental justice and, you know, the, the way in which people who are, you know, who live near uh, pollution, uh, yeah. industrial facilities, that pollution has increased susceptibility to right. COVID-19, right? So right. it's really directly tied in. Well, let's go ahead and get into this uh, conversation with filmmaker Cecilia Alderondo. And Justin, yeah, please stick around. Would love to chat with you more about your reporting over the last year. And again, we will we'll try to get some hope in there <laughs> towards the end of the pod. <laughs> great, great. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Uh, well, again, this is Temperature Check from Grist. Hi, I'm Mirka, the Social Media Engagement Fellow at Grist.org. Temperature Check is a new show about climate, race, and culture produced by Grist and made possible by listeners like you. Founded in 1999, Grist remains committed to changing the national narrative around climate. And as a nonprofit, none of our work is possible without the steady and loyal support from people like you. At a time when our global community demands action to address the climate crisis, our work at Grist has never been more important. Every day we work tirelessly to bring you the climate news that matters most. And for us to engage our audience of millions of people, we need you. So thank you for joining today's episode, and please consider making a donation to Grist today. Donate now, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thanks for tuning in. Cecilia Alderondo is the filmmaker behind the powerful new documentary titled Landfall. Landfall tells the real story of people living in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, which devastated the island in 2017. The film is uh, it's beautifully shot and really thoughtfully directed. Este era el huracán que teníamos estacionado en el centro del pecho. Es ahora o nunca. And Cecilia is here with us now. Welcome in, Cecilia. Hi, thanks for having me, Andrew. Well, let's get into this conversation. Why was it important for you to make this movie? Uh, what was your goal in, in making Landfall? I think the first thing I'll say is that I, I'm Puerto Rican via diaspora, like many millions of, of people living outside of Puerto Rico. I have a lot of family there. And when Hurricane Maria threatened to arrive and made landfall as a Category 5 hurricane, I had the experience, uh, like many, many people, of kind of watching in horror. And I say it was a kind of bifurcated experience because on the one hand, I didn't know what was happening with a lot of my family. I was disconnected. Mm. A lot of us had no idea what was had become of our loved ones. And at the same time, there was all of this media imagery that was really uh, circulating the same kinds of images that I think we're starting to become quite desensitized to in a way uh, around disasters. And I'm talking about like flooded streets and downed trees and this kind of parade of suffering of people waiting for aid to come and the aid not arriving. And so there was this kind of emerging media narrative that I found kind of really upsetting because it was so far from the story that was actually emerging from the ground, which was 
a much more grassroots story of people saving each other's lives in the in the face of being totally abandoned by federal government, by institutions. So, you know, as a filmmaker, I was just really thrown off and dissatisfied by what I was seeing. And I felt like one of the things that I could do was make a film about this. And I was also really aware of the financial crisis that Puerto Rico had been in long before the hurricane. And, yeah. and I was aware that in most of the mainstream press was not talking about that at all. Yeah. And what, what was the process like of connecting with the spectrum of people that appear in the movie, right? I mean, we'll, we'll get into a little bit some of the different scenes and themes, but, you know, you have people who are farmers, people who live and work in the cities, they're real estate developers. You know, how did you identify and, and connect with some of these people um, before, you know, making the decision to include them in the movie? Well, one of the principles that I started with from the very beginning was a principle that anyone who lives day-to-day in a crisis is an expert. Mm. To me, the most important story, as I've been saying about, about Puerto Rico, is a story of popular response to disaster, right? Of mm. mutual aid. And so it was really important for me not to kind of follow the conventions of most typical documentaries, which yeah. would be to approach, you know, credentialed experts like an economist right. or a uh, someone with a PhD or, right. God forbid, in Puerto Rico, an, an elected official. <laughs> there was a deep sense, I think, in Puerto Rico, and there still is, that uh, we need to radically rethink the way we confer power on some of these individuals. Mm. Because if if anything, I think the story of Puerto Rico demonstrates that, that that's not where justice actually really is done. Mm. It's done among people helping other people. Did you find that you were able to better connect with people just, you know, being someone who is of the Puerto Rican diaspora? Do you think there was a level of trust that uh, some of the people who are in the movie had with you uh, versus, you know, someone who might just be kind of parachuting in without the background, without the historical knowledge, without the lived-in experience? I would say yes and no. Hmm. Because I grew up outside of Puerto Rico, there are some long-standing tensions and divisions between people on the outside living in diaspora and people who live in Puerto Rico day-to-day. Yeah. And I could not have made this film without the deep collaboration and contribution of an activist based in Puerto Rico named Lale Namro Pastor, who grew up in Puerto Rico, has lived there, you know, her whole life, has been much more deeply involved in, you know, the political uh, struggles there. There's no way that I, with my perspective, could have made this film by myself. Yeah. I had a lot of blind spots to contend with. And I think one of the the things that, you know, again, I re- realized on a personal level that also I think is expands outward in terms of the the ethics with which we made the film is that, you know, one of the the byproducts of colonialism is this migration, is this sense of being disconnected from one's homeland and having one's history robbed of them. Like really, there was so much that I had never been taught, so much that was not in my history books and certainly not even in Puerto Rico's history books. Mm. And so I, I knew I was actually susceptible to exactly that kind of problematic filmmaking where I was at risk of parachuting in myself as Mm. an outsider. And so Hmm. um, because of the fact that much of what we cover in the film is precisely about uh, people from the outside coming in and and, and, and acting in these really problematic kind of savior-like ways that that just reproduce colonial dynamics, I knew that that this was my biggest potential pitfall. And this movie is personal to you on probably a few levels, right? I mean, just for one example, I was reading that your grandmother lived on the island, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she ended up passing away a few months after the hurricane. Oh. 
So she was, uh, at the time that Maria hit, uh, she was uh, wheelchair-bound and needed 24-hour care. And I think this is one of the stories that's, that's you know, often under-counted. I mean, think about now with COVID even, right? We're talking about counting the deaths from COVID. Yeah. And you think about how many people are slipping through the cracks. She doesn't show up in any of the official death tallies. Mm-hmm. But I am completely convinced that she would have lived longer if the response had been different. Nosotros no somos iguales. Nunca hemos sido, nunca nos van a ver así. Y realmente no importa. Because we're not that important. And so this is part of the, the grief that I carried while making the film. Even though I just shared with you the pain that drove me to make the film, it's not about me. It's my job, I think, uh, and I, this is what the film ultimately proposes, is if you're not directly living the crisis day to day, the invitation is for you to sit and hold space for those who are, mm. to try and create an experience of witnessing that is sort of decentering you, but invites you in anyway. Mm. The film is just beautifully shot. And in particular, there are a lot of scenes that are serene, often without people. There are shots of the ocean, architecture, urban landscapes. And it made me curious, how did you want to depict Puerto Rico in a visual sense, both the island itself and the people? You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was making the film was, you know, what is the visual legacy that I've inherited? Mm. Like, how has Puerto Rico been depicted until now? And I feel like Puerto Rico, on the one hand, has, yes, been sort of chronically invisible. But when it has been represented, it's often been as a kind of tourist paradise, right? It's sort of been offered up for viewers from the outside. And, you know, this is how tourism works, right? It's sort of the the happy-go-lucky native saying, come and, and join us and have your daiquiri on the beach. Yeah, oh yeah. And so even Puerto Rico's images become something that are sold to somebody else. Yeah. And the question isn't whether Puerto Rico should be shown as a beautiful place, but for whom? And so this is a major question of the film. To whom will Puerto Rico belong? The film operates as a kind of tour of Puerto Rico so that you build up a kind of portrait over time of this place. Um, and it's and it's very much about um, the land and it's very much about, you know, the diversity of this place and the complexity of this place and the richness. And But in fact, it's also a place whose fate hangs in the balance. So it's saying this is our place. And for those who are visiting, it's not that they're not welcome. It's that they're welcome to sit a spell and be with this place on its own terms mm. rather than for their experience or for their pleasure. You're just invited to be there as a way of kind of over time building this composite portrait of this beautiful place and sort of ideally making a film that people will come away and say, wow, how much richer is this place than I thought? I read in another interview that you wanted to avoid ruined porn, the victim narrative. How did you do that as a filmmaker? I mean, part of it, again, going back to this idea of people being experts, was finding ways to show people in their dynamism and in their complexity. Mm. You know, I think pleasure is really key here. Mm. I think that there's this idea that, like, in moments of crisis, it's only what in Spanish we would call ay bendito. Like, it's it's this sort of pitying, like a a, a moaning and wailing, right? Oh, how terrible. Oh, how sad. Oh, it's so sad for you. And I think that, you know, particularly privileged societies have a real tendency to, you know, when they pay attention to suffering, do that, to pity people and to say, oh, look how terrible it is over there, right? Oh, it's so sad for you. 
And in fact, what we wanted to do was flip that narrative entirely on its head and, and say, Puerto Rico is a place to learn from. Puerto Rico, again, if, if, there's, if there's expertise in crisis, in, in living in crisis, then those of us who are maybe less attuned to crisis day to day should would do well to learn from these people. So I remember when we were when we were making the first making the film, somebody I interviewed telling me, and this was where I first kind of got one of my first ideas about wanting to make sure pleasure made it into mm. the film. She told me a story about how it was like over a month into the hurricane where the power was still out and everyone was exhausted. And she said, you know, what we need is a party. Yeah. And she basically, they occupied this abandoned hotel, a bunch of her and her friends. They got some bootleg alcohol. They found a DJ and they threw a rave in this abandoned hotel. And it was just this, you know, one night of just having a wild party together. And I think that we really need to talk about like the need for catharsis when things are really hard, the need to be together, to really feel your the warmth of your people, of your community. And Puerto Rico has that in spades. Yeah, well, there's almost a dinner table scene where mm-hmm. there's a few, you know, people I'm guessing, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who are sitting around, they're talking politics. And there's just such a, a range of emotions at that dinner table, right? You know, there's the joy, I think, of being around one another, of eating, of having the conversation. But then there's just also the pain, people talking about what they've been experiencing, what they're currently experiencing. And as a viewer, what you just described is coming through. There's the pain and the pleasure kind of coming through all at once. Yeah, and I think, especially, I think maybe in the United States after the last presidential election, 2016, I think that there maybe there's this like, you know, this weird growing consensus that like one should not talk politics at the table because, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> lest, lest it go haywire right. or something like this. Right, right. And, and maybe it's because, I, you know, in my family, I was always like the intense, like one who wanted to always talk politics. But like so many of the relationships that I care most about in my life, friends, uh, compatriots, et cetera, are ones in which political awakening and hanging out (laughs) go hand in hand. Like we think of like political awakening as only happening through like the ballot box or, or going to a protest or, you know, it's like sitting around and talking with your friends Mm. and and saying Mm. something's wrong here. Right. Opportunity is just a huge theme of the movie that comes through to me. Uh, Again, there are scenes with real estate developers showcasing luxury residences. There are tech entrepreneurs pitching cryptocurrency as a growth opportunity in Puerto Rico. Uh, And then there are these residents who are talking about the history of colonization and being exploited. It is only when we unite together and work as a we. The last time that there was a we, my people died. You know? My people died and my land was taken the last time that there was a we. So honestly, I don't trust any of you. In speaking with the people you met making the film, you know, what are the range of solutions and visions that residents have for the island? And, you know, how did those visions inevitably come into conflict? People were talking about the idea that this crisis moment was was a chance. Right. Then the question becomes a chance for what? And depending on what their political affiliation, you might get very different answers to that. And the film tries to posit the question without telling you exactly what the answer should be, but to say, you know, what world will this become? And I think that there is a, a really, really important sea change happening in Puerto Rico where I think 
people are fed up with the quote-unquote solutions that they've been peddled and sold over the years. There are some grassroots efforts happening simultaneously while these other deeper-pocketed opportunities mm-hmm. are coming into the island, right? I mean, that, this is all sort of in play, right? Uh, absolutely. And I would say it's not just some, it's many. It, yeah. and, and, and they have only increased since the hurricane. You know, you have it, this incredible network, actually, of Centers for Mutual mm. Aid. Before COVID, I had not really heard the phrase mutual aid mm. talked about in the sort of continental U.S. very much, in the in sort of mainstream conversation. This year is the first time I've heard people talk openly about the principle of mutual aid unless they, you know, are kind of on the far left. And I think that that's part of what we're seeing is that, again, going back to this idea that Puerto Rico is a handbook for our times, it's a place to learn from and to study. And frankly, you have a a much more sophisticated infrastructure for dealing with crisis because it's been built up over the past few years. But you have communities that are doing all kinds of redemptive and and incredible projects, whether it's around solar power or like energy independence, food independence, community care, looking after elders, health care solutions, all kinds of things. Climate change isn't going anywhere, right? We know this. And so we would do well to really start to to listen to and learn from these models of community-based, popularly driven, culturally informed ways of responding. Because up until now, I think, in, especially in the United States, the models for recovery have been from the outside. They have been bureaucratic. They haven't been led by communities. They haven't been culturally competent. I mean, you have so many people coming and doing work in Puerto Rico that don't even speak the language. Yeah, and now that the film's out, what do you hope that it does, Cecilia, now that it's out into the world? As long as I've been making the film, I've been I've been sort of shouting from the rooftops that that everyone should be paying attention to Puerto Rico. Not just because Puerto Rico needs it, but because everyone needs it. Um, when COVID hit, I was like, oh God, here we go. Because I knew, and it has happened, yeah. that, that Puerto Rico would once again sort of fade into the background. Because, you know, let's face it, there's a sort of hierarchy of human suffering in Puerto Rico doesn't come to number one on the list. That being said, I was like, I really don't want Puerto Rico to slip through the cracks. But I also was aware that this is a film about not really so much the storm, but the aftermath of the storm. What comes next? It's a film about recovery and about the kinds of tensions that emerge in in a phase of recovery. We're not in that phase right now when it comes to COVID, right? We're still in, you know, wave upon wave of crisis. And so I think this is a film that in many ways is going to be even more um, uh, meaningful to people when they're in that space of aftermath, that that sense of like, what comes next, which is not far off. What are our communities about? Who do we love the most? What can we do with one another? It's a film that in many ways, I I think people take solace in uh, amidst the challenges. So... My hope is that people will find solace in the film, even even as it's challenging and it's complicated. But I think that that's what's going to be most meaningful in the end. Well, thank you so much, Cecilia, for coming on Temperature Check. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. And before you bounce, where can people find your work, Cecilia? To find out about Landfall, they can go to our website, which is landfallfilm.com. They can also follow us on social media, on Twitter and uh, Facebook and Instagram and all those things. And then also my personal, my filmmaking website is blackscracklefilms.com. Great. Uh, And again, that was Cecilia Alderondo, filmmaker and professor at Williams College in Massachusetts. 
That was such a fantastic conversation with Cecilia Alderondo, filmmaker of the movie Landfall. And back with me now is today's co-host, Justin Worland. He covers climate change, policy, and politics over at Time Magazine. And he's going to tell us uh, a bit more about his beat in 2020 and give us a look ahead at 2021. So, Justin, thanks so much for sticking around. Uh, And I'm curious, which climate story stood out to you most this year? This has been such a a, a wild year with many really important climate threads. I think one sort of obvious one is the election, right? This is the first time where climate has really played a big role in the election. I think a lot of people don't realize, understandably, because of COVID, that uh, that the Biden campaign really used climate as a way to activate young voters, uh, and they ran ads focused on on climate, which is a real first in the general election season. I also think there's this really interesting understanding around environmental justice and the sort of unifying of the environmental justice movement yeah. with a lot of the sort of climate activists who hadn't thought that much about environmental justice at all. And, and that was sort of entrained prior to this year, but really was ignited by this, yeah. uh, you know, racial justice awakening that happened. So those are just two things. But I mean, it, it, it was a wild year. Yeah. And, you know, look, at Gris, we, we wrestle with this notion of climate fatigue, right? And that's part of our jobs. And yeah, knowing there's all this gloom and doom, but how do we also stay motivated to continue to report these stories, to, you know, do the stories about pushing for bigger change? And how do you wrestle with that climate fatigue, Justin, since you're you're covering the story 24-7 pretty much? Yeah, I mean, that is that is a really good question. And I think there's sort of two parts to it, at least in, mm. in my mind. One is, how do I personally yeah, wrestle yeah. with it? Right. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. You know, trying to take find time to just sort of make space to do like simple things that I enjoy, whether that's just like exercise or like reading a good fiction book. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, for the audience, sure. like that's that's a a whole different question. But I personally really am of the belief that we present compelling stories that engage with these issues in different ways. And yeah. Everybody will have to find their own way to grapple with the climate fatigue, but but you know sure. present people with stories that they read and understand, and um, they'll do with it what they what they will, and hopefully that's a lot. I guess it's sort of a long way of saying um, I try not to worry too much about how the audience receives it in that sense. Do you see your job getting any easier in twenty twenty one? I think that the new challenge is going to be how do we cover this issue that is really in some ways diffuse. The Biden administration talks about incorporating climate into everything, uh, you know, all of their policy making. How do we cover something like that? How does one person, or you know, even even Grist, you know, you've you've got a, a whole team of people, but how do you yeah. cover something that's really everywhere? You know, it's just it's a whole different challenge. So I think it'll be easier in some respects, but I think it'll just present a whole new set of challenges at the same time. Yeah, you know, and you've already alluded to uh, the change in administration. I mean, is that is that the big storyline of the year? If you had to pick one, I mean, is is that it, or or would you pick a different storyline for the year? Well, I think I think the administration um, is hugely important, but I also think the sort of global engagement. How does the U.S. engage yeah. with the rest of the world? I mean, just from a you know a, a broad global perspective, like yeah these interactions are happening next year and we're really setting up what will be a, a years, if not decades long, uh, sort of uh, environment for global climate policy. So I think, I think that is one really big thread. I, I also just think like, you know, thinking about yeah. how does climate intersect with all these other issues, whether that be racial justice or whether that be, you know, trade policy or, or whatever. I think that's all going to come to the fore in the next year in a way that we're only sort of seeing the, uh, 
the sort of first stages of right now. And Justin, for you, uh, how about any New Year's resolutions? Good question. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think I think it's much along the lines of like uh, my vacation, which is to say, like, don't <laughs> wait until December to use your vacation day <laughs> days. Right. Um, but you know, it's like simple things, like see people, you know, go outside. <laughs> yeah, hopefully next year will be a a better year. I know. So hopefully 2021 is the year where we can see people and go outside, which boy, if we had said that at the beginning of 2020, that would almost sound silly, right? Yeah, it really puts things in perspective. Well, it is time for us to head out. It was so great to hear from filmmaker Cecilia Alderondo about her documentary, Landfall, uh, which premiered digitally earlier this year at the Tribeca Film Festival. And Justin, before you bounce, where can people find your work? Yeah, the, the best place, just look me up on Twitter. My handle is at Justin Warland, so just my name. Uh, and I also would encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter. And the link is at the top of my uh, Twitter page, but it's just a newsletter that comes out every other week. We're on, on a bit of a hiatus now, but it looks at the way in which climate is related to the big news story of the week in ways that you might not expect. Fantastic. What is the name of that newsletter? Uh, it's 1.5. Perfect. So there it is, folks. If you don't know now, you know, uh, follow Justin's newsletter 1.5. Follow him on Twitter. Justin, thank you so much again for dropping by today. It was, uh, as always, a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thank you, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Temperature Check. Uh, we hope you found this episode interesting and informative. And just a heads up, uh, the team will be off the next couple of weeks for Christmas and the new year on the holiday season. But don't despair. We will be back with a new episode on January 8th. Temperature Check is a podcast from Grist, produced in collaboration with Reasonable Volume. I'm your host, Andrew Simon. My co-host today was Justin Worland, senior correspondent at Time Magazine. It's produced by Brianna Flores, with editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Caroline Saunders is Grist's chief of staff and this podcast marketing lead. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. Grist is a nonprofit, reader-supported newsroom covering climate, justice, and solutions. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends to subscribe to Temperature Check. You can also help to sustain our work by going to grist.org slash donate. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org slash donate. Hope you're staying safe, and I hope you have uh, a great, fulfilling holiday season with, with friends and family. Uh, and no matter what that looks like for you, just stay safe out there, stay healthy, and until next time.